0: Amen, amen. You guys can have a seat this morning. Thankful for you to be in here today. Uh, My name is Jesse Pauley. I am the pastor of discipleship and worship here at Ridgecrest. And so Justin preached for us last week, started off this Now What series as we spent about 10 weeks getting to Easter, getting to the passion of our Christ, walking through the Old Testament. And then we kind of asked the question once we got to Easter, well, Now what? What do you do now, right? If you're a disciple of Jesus, what do you do now? And Thankfully, in the chapter uh, of Luke, in the 24th chapter of Luke, we've got a really clear explanation as to what they did. uh, Because Jesus, in his resurrection, didn't just immediately ascend. He stays here on earth for a little while. So we have a really great understanding of what that now what looks like for the first disciples. And we get to see what it may look like. For us. But Justin preached last week. I'm preaching this week. If you missed the memo, we give Matt just a real short little one month sabbatical. So he's out um, for just a little bit, but he'll be back at the beginning of May. Um, so you can be praying for them in the middle of that. Um, and so we're really thankful to be in the midst of this this morning. Uh, last week, Justin preached on the road to Emmaus as Jesus um, presented himself to two of his followers on the road to Emmaus. Uh, as they are there and then in the breaking of bread he is uh, their eyes are open and his identity is revealed to them and they kind of come into a full understanding and so last week as we got to share in the breaking of bread and communion uh, that was a really neat experience for all of us but we're just going to continue in the 24th chapter of Luke starting in verse 36 today we're going to continue in that chapter so if The passage is going to be on the screen, but if you want to go ahead and pull out your phone and get to your passage, or there's the Pew Bible right there behind you or in front of you, Uh, that's going to be on page 885 in your Pew Bible. So if you're interested in that, and if you don't have a Bible, we want you to take that home with you today. It's going to be our gift to you this morning. So let me begin reading for us in chapter 24, verse 36. And when he had said this, he showed them his hands and his feet. And while they still disbelieved for joy and were marveling, he said to them, Have you anything here to eat? They gave him a piece of broiled fish, and he took it and ate before them. So that's going to be our text for today. We're going to kind of just look into that and dig in to see, again, the now what. What does this mean for those early disciples, and what does this mean for us today? Today. One of the first things we see in the midst of that is that doubt is a strong feeling, isn't it? It only takes a a tiny amount to begin to pervade all of our thoughts. What if she doesn't love me anymore? Right? What if I'm not as sharp mentally as I once was? What if that job that I've had for quite some time is not really as Trustworthy as I thought it once was. That paycheck may not be coming soon. And the question that the disciples are going to be dealing with here is, what if he wasn't who he said he was? Right, because they saw Jesus on the cross and and some of them have seen the empty tomb, but all of them are still in this state of disbelief. They are unsure whether or not this Jesus has really died and really risen. And so as Jesus appears to them, he brings them the same message he brings us today, which is peace to you. We see him show up in verse 36, kind of almost as mysteriously and miraculously as we saw him disappear last week in verse 31, right? He's there with them, they break bread, and boom, Jesus kind of disappears. Now this isn't Penn and Teller style illusion, right? Although, if you are really crafty at like pulling string out of your Shirt pocket or making a dove appear. I found out this week that Ken Money is going to be your new best friend. He is apparently all about like that kind of pen and, and teller style illusion. So if you've got those tricks up your sleeve, literally find Ken Money as quick as you can and get you a new lifelong bestie, okay? But that's not what Jesus is doing here. These aren't illusions, Michael. These are real life miracles that Jesus is doing in the midst of. His resurrection body. See, we find out that this is really impressive, even more impressive than this passage leads leads us to believe. Because when we look at its parallel in John chapter 20, we find out that the disciples weren't just up in this room altogether. They were up in this room together with the door locked. They are terrified. They're kind of camping out and hiding out because they are scared that the same Jews that have just come for Jesus are coming for them. And so they've locked the door, they've hidden themselves away, and they're just there terrified. So the now what? That's literally what they're asking themselves. And the answer they've come up with is, let's just all huddle together in this room and lock the door. Maybe we'll be able to hide out for a little while. And then boom, out of nowhere, Jesus appears in the midst of this locked room and it says that they are startled and terrified. And I can tell you, you would be too. Right? This is, this is what like, nightmares are made of. This is what the, the horror movies are wanting to get you to. This is the kind of startle that you're trying to go for. Now if you think you have a really good horror movie, just keep that to yourself this morning. I have no interest in knowing anything about it. I hate horror movies. Scream like a little girl. I don't do well with them. Uh, I can remember freshman year of college, like a group full of us watching one in a dorm room and just thinking, there are far too many people in here for me to scream like I want to right now. This isn't good. I hate them. So if you think you've got a good one, just keep it to yourself. But that's what they're at right now. They're in this locked room. They don't have electricity, right? So it's not really bright. This kind of dark, kind of maybe you got a couple of candles going. It's kind of, and then boom, this super bloody dude just shows up out of nowhere. That's terrifying, right? So they're absolutely frightened. And Jesus asked them the most obvious question in the world, which is, Why are you troubled? You just popped out of nowhere. That's why I'm scared. I just peed my pants a little bit. This is terrifying. We just answered why they're a little bit scared. But Jesus asked a follow-up that really gets at his heart. It's not why they may have just messed their pants. But it's, why have you been doubting? Why did you doubt me? Why have you second-guessed me? Why have you begun to let this doubt seep into your thoughts? And that's how he starts this conversation with them. See, doubt is normal. It's commonplace. All of us in here today, if we are honest with ourselves, have wrestled with it before. We've questioned some things about our faith. We've questioned some things about our Bible. We've questioned some things about our experience with this God. It would be dishonest for me to get up here And say that these questions are sinful or wrong. It would be dishonest for me to do that because half of our Psalter and whole books of our Old Testament are this. Asking these big kind of terrifying questions in life. And what I want you to see this morning is that these questions are not necessarily wrong, but how we deal with them may be. See, if we've never doubted or if we've never had questions, then our Christianity, our faith is just sort of tacit and unthought. It's at the back of our mind. If we really have tested, if we really have tried, then we have to have struggled with these things before. We have to know how to wrestle with big things and big questions well. We need to know that because in the midst of our pandemic, there is an epidemic. There is a doubt problem right now. If you aren't aware of it, you're probably one of the smart people who haven't spent a tremendous amount of time on social media. But let me give you a quick heads up as to what's happening over there in that dumpster fire. Two of the most common words on kind of... Christian social media, Christian Twitter or whatnot, which is a real thing. Then you're not going to go to ChristianTwitter.com, but if you go to Twitter and you kind of curate your list, you'll find that Christian Twitter pretty quick. Two of the most common words in about the last five years have been these. One, deconstruction, and two, exvangelical. If you've not seen these words, blessings on you. If you have, you've probably already come up with a good definition for you. For them this morning, but let me kind of give you the what's what today if they're new words for you. Deconstruction is just that they have taken their faith and they are deconstructing it, taking it apart piece by piece. And the goal of deconstruction, let me tell you, the goal is a good goal, right? I personally kind of deconstruct my faith with great regularity. I break it down and I I seek to see what's superfluous, what's extra that I've added in here that isn't really in the Word. And then I I build it back up stronger, right, more firm, and I I have more resolve in what I believe. And Deconstruction is a good and fine thing to do. But the way that it's being modeled right now is not deconstruction, but just pure destruction. You come in with a wrecking ball. You crash through everything that your predecessors may have thought was good and right. And they are left with shambles. It is deconstruction without reconstruction, which just leaves you with crumbles. And for so many believers nowadays, they have been deconstructing their faith for a myriad of reasons. And they are left with these Crumbles. And they're just confused. And let me tell you what's a lot more work than deconstruction is reconstruction. So they just leave it there. They leave it in the crumbles. So that's deconstruction. That's just a a quick one for you. Secondly, the big word that you also are seeing nowadays is exvangelical. Again, not super creative, but you get the idea pretty quickly, right? Someone who was not evangelical, but has now cut out of it. And they're now an ex-evangelical, right? And this word has been, again, popping up very recently in the past five years or so. But these people have left the camp. They've deconstructed so much. They've said, those aren't my people anymore. I'm now an ex-evangelical. And they've really based a lot of their personality and their belief system on what they were, not necessarily where they are right now. And I tell you all this not to just get you caught up on the lingo, although some of you maybe need a little, a little prod in that direction. But I tell you all of this because American Christianity is hitting a critical moment when it comes to people leaving the faith. It's our camp right now that is hurting. The most recent Gallup poll now shows it for the first time since they've been surveying the topic. For the first time since they have been surveying the topic that less than half of the country belongs to a church of any kind. Less than half of the country belongs to a church of any kind. And they're not going to Buddhism. They're not going to Sikhism. They're not going to Islam. Honestly, goodness. They're not even going to atheism. They're going to the crumbles. Tom Rainer coined the phrase Apatheists. They're apathetic towards God. You may have heard them called nuns, right? That doesn't mean they wear like the habit and they work in a Catholic school. Not those type of NUNs, but N-O-N-E-S. People who have no religious affiliation, right? So they're not going to these other things. They're just being left in their crumbles. Why? Because they have doubts and questions and no one is willing to sit with them in the middle of it. And I'm not saying this to... Predict the end of the American church or the predict the end of the church. Every generation has had this hurdle of its own and every generation's dealt with it its own way, right? The early 21st century had kind of the, uh, the four horsemen, in a sense, of new atheism Sam Harris and Richard Dawkins. And, and so everybody went out to learn, you know, apologetics and learn the Kalam argument and the teleological argument and all these fun, you know, apologetic tools that you can pull out of your tool belt. But overwhelmingly, the message we hear nowadays from these ex-evangelicals and these people who have deconstructed is that those things are not what they're really seeking for. That's not really hitting at what they, uh, have, why they left the church. They have doubts and they want someone to take them seriously, not be afraid and not be combative. They want their questions answered. They want someone to understand where it's coming from. They want us to be honest about our faith and not afraid to press into it. And if one word, if you're not familiar with these terms in this culture, I, I want to clue you in because maybe you're not taking me seriously enough as to how big of a movement this kind of thing is. Maybe you're not on Twitter. Maybe you're not on TikTok. I'm not even on that. But maybe you're not on some of these things. Maybe you're not super cool and hip like these guys on the front row down here. Right? They are super cool and hip, by the way. But there's a, a guy on TikTok, which is just this little social media app where you show a little video. No, they're never long, 40 seconds, a minute long, and they just kind of do whatever. But there's a guy on there by the name of Abraham Piper. You may recognize that last name. And yeah, his, his father is John Piper, the very famous preacher in America, super great theologian. Abraham, though, has left the faith. His son has left the faith in his late 30s. And he has 900,000 followers on TikTok. And his videos are almost exclusively him just very quickly and dismissively writing off the crazy and weird things that his so-called fundamentalist upbringing had him go through. Crazy and weird things like having your kids read the Bible. Crazy, right? Going on mission trips. Super crazy, right? Weird stuff, right? And you may think, man, who's gonna listen to this guy? Because he looks really goofy too. Who's gonna listen to this guy? 900,000 people, that's who. He has an audience, puts out a video at least once a week. 900,000 millennials and Gen Z are looking at him and they're thinking, this guy's providing some kind of truth for me. This resonates. With me. And they're all deconstructing their faith at the same time with him as he's doing it publicly. I tell you this to say we've got to take this seriously. They have lost faith in Jesus overwhelmingly because no one has sat with them in the midst of their doubt. And their doubt needs to be shown that Jesus was not a fraud. We've got to learn not to fear this doubt, not to fear these questions, but lean into them and lovingly walk with them in the midst of it. Right, we've got to learn to take passages like James 1, 5, and 6 that say we must ask for wisdom and know that our God will give it to us. We've got to take those seriously. We have to trust our message We have to truly believe that no matter how hard we press into Christianity, no matter how hard we press into the truth of Jesus, no matter how hard we press into the truth of faith, that it will not be wanting. We can press as hard as we want to, and we know that's firm. For many of them, they've looked at our own faith, and they've seen that we're not willing ...to ask the hard questions because they think we're scared of the answers that might come up. Let me tell you, they need their doubts resolved in Jesus. We need our doubts resolved in Jesus. And this is right where Jesus points his disciples. He says, you have doubts, let me squash them. You doubt that it was really me on the cross... Look at my hands. Who else could this be? You doubt that I was raised from the dead? Put your hand in my wound. You doubt that I'm human? You think that I'm a spirit? Here, give me some fish. I'll show you. I can get it down. right? Jesus wants to show them that they should have confidence believing in him. He wants to build their confidence. Jesus' resurrected body builds our confidence in him. And this is what he does in verse 39 he says see my hands and my feet that it is I myself touch me and see see one of the more shocking things about this is that the resurrected Jesus is not perfectly whole the resurrected Jesus still has his wounds he still has the holes in his hands and the holes in his feet and the wound in his side and the prods on his head from when he was on the cross just a few days before. Why has he done this? Right? If he if he really has just raised himself from the dead, wouldn't you think he could make that flesh come back together? Cause it's kind of gross, right? That's kind of disgusting. Jesus, why are you leaving this way? It's shocking to us. It would be shocking to the disciples as well. But he's kept these scars open for some reason. He chose to come before his disciples with these scars. Why? So that's what we're going to spend the rest of our time looking at. Why these scars and what that may have to say to our doubt. Firstly, His wounds proved that it was him. Sometimes it's it's difficult to recognize people, right? Especially right after some kind of big change. Now my boy Clay up here, right, he didn't just go through the cross, but he just got like 20 inches of hair cut off, right? 20 inches. How long? You didn't count it? You didn't measure it? It was a lot of hair. But that first time you saw Clay scooting on by you, you were like, who is that guy? I'd never seen him before. Then you're like, wait a second. That's the super handsome Clay Gibson. I see him now. I recognize him now. It took me a second, but I got him. Now, imagine Jesus, right? He's just gone upon the cross, gone through the most insane physical agony that you could go through, then died, And then he was in a tomb for three days, and now he's resurrected. I'd have to imagine he looks, smells, and and acts a little bit different than he did at Thursday night dinner, right? And so when Jesus presents himself to these disciples in the locked room, his wounds are his overwhelmingly unique feature. That's how they know it's him. Nobody else has the wounds on their wrists and in their side but our Christ. And so when they look at him, they're going to know this is obviously Jesus. To dispel any rumors that someone else dressed up like him or to squash their doubts of his authenticity, he shows them these wounds. And this will forever be his overwhelmingly recognizable feature. He's going to be known by his actions upon that cross. First Peter 2 verse 24 tell us he himself bore our sins in his body on that tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. These wounds are his recognizable feature. His wounds prove that it was him. Secondly, His wounds show the good news that he is still human. His wounds show the good news that he is still human. You may not immediately draw a tremendous amount of theological importance from that, but it is extremely necessary that the resurrected Jesus remain human. Now, up until this point, it's been his humanity that was understood. Right? His divinity was in question. Right, As Christians, we believe that Jesus was fully God, fully man, put together in this beautiful, perfect, perfect union that we call the hypostatic union. Right, And up until this point, the, the controversial or the questionable thing was, is he really divine? Is he really God? Well, he's just raised himself from the dead. That one got a nice check next to it, right? God. Check. We'll go with that one. But now he's just resurrected himself from the dead and their question is, is he really a human? Right? What do they think that he is immediately? They think it's a spirit. Right? They have no real concept that he would be still human. And because that's in question, Jesus very quickly wants to put those doubts to rest. He says, you doubt that I'm human? Here, touch my wounds. Feel my flesh and blood, literally. Experience my humanity. He wants to remove any doubt that he is still human. And then he goes on to prove it even more so by getting hungry and saying, hey, I see you've got some broiled fish over there. Mind if I Snag a bit. I haven't eaten for the past couple days. I'm a little bit hungry. If I'm going first meal out of resurrection, probably not broiled fish, but it gives me a tremendous amount of hope that my resurrected body also gets to eat. So, good news for us out there. (laughs) So Jesus remains human. And why is this... Important is because Jesus was not just human in his death, right? That surely covers a great deal. But he is human in his resurrection, completely solving our human condition and human problem. And he remains human so that as he's making his advocacy before the Father, he can say, I am one of them. So Jesus' wounds show the good news that he is still human. right? And we get to join him in this. Colossians 1 verse 18 calls Jesus the firstborn from the dead. We remember, we know the good news as we share the gospel. We remember that last part that many of us leave out, which is the good news that we will join him in the resurrection. We will also get resurrected bodies. Our human condition will once and for all be solved. Shows us the good news that Jesus is still human. Thirdly, his wounds show us that we will have wounds too. This world is not going to be pain free. We know that by now, most of us, right? Your bodies, your spirit, your spouse, your children... The ones you love will be wounded. And we've been promised a life of burden and suffering like that of Jesus. You say that again for those of you who've heard a different message. We have been promised a life of burden and suffering like that of Jesus. We have not been promised health. We have not been promised wealth. We have been promised nothing more than this. John 15, verse 20. Remember, the word that I said to you, a servant is not greater than his master. If they persecuted me, they will also persecute you. Paul says in 2 Timothy 3, 12. Indeed, all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. The Beatitudes give special blessing for those who mourn, those who are persecuted, those who are reviled. Clearly, this is an expectation of our lives. The great preacher Charles Spurgeon says, If suffering could have been avoided, surely our glorious head ought to have escaped. And what do we see in these wounds if not that he did not escape that? Our Christ suffered deeply. And I know that there are many out there today in our midst with deep wounds. Wounds that you've never let anybody else know about. Wounds that you keep hidden because you're very, very scared of them. You don't want them to resurface. If that's you today, know that we are a people who understand. As Caleb prayed earlier, we are all people who have been hurt and wounded and broken. And maybe some of you, these wounds have caused you to doubt. Maybe you've been hurt by a church. Maybe you've been hurt by other Christians. And you're, unafra- you're just afraid of who you're allowed to trust nowadays. To you, he brings the word that he brought to his disciples as he comes before them. Which is peace to you. And then he reveals his wounds as well. The wounds of Christ show us that we will have wounds too. Fourthly, and most terrifyingly, his wounds continue to accuse his enemies. His wounds continue to accuse his enemies. These scars are not just temporary. He is still wearing them today, and thus, since he's still wearing them today, they continue to have power today. Right? Scars that are placed there by someone else carry a little bit different message. I've got a scar on my knee. This is really embarrassing. Okay. I've got a scar on my knee. When I was in the sixth grade, I was on the, I wasn't even planning to tell this story this morning, but it works. I was on the academic team. So there you go. And we had an academic team tournament. Just let, let that sink in for a second. At a neighboring school, and we were waiting in the gym to go back and take our tests. And I was supposed to take some tests that day. I don't know what it was. I was sitting up on the top in the bleachers. And I got up to go take my test. They called for me. And my foot got caught on the bleacher. Um, and I proceeded to fall all the way down. Um, and as a sixth grader, that's just the end. It's game over, right? <laughs> There's no coming back from that, right? I have a little notch on my knee that reminds me of that. I would have liked to have remembered that or forgotten that story, but it reminds me all the time, right? That says one thing. If a scar is given to you by someone else, that says something very different, doesn't it? That scar stands for something very different. When I was a child, I can remember growing up at New Friendship Baptist Church in Auburn, Kentucky, and I can remember sitting in a pew and looking at a man in front of me who had a large scar across his head. This man's name is Glenn Stanley. He's since gone on to be with the Lord. But Glenn fought in Vietnam and was shot in the head and left to die. And his whole troop um, was, was killed in this one uh, kind of uh, excursion. And as the enemy was coming through, they were taking off the valuable things off of these men. And they pulled Glenn's hand up and they took his ring off. But what they didn't know was that Glenn was still alive. He was playing dead in the midst of this. And once the enemy had left, Glenn crawled back to However far away he knew safety was found his people and they made him well again but glenn had a massive scar on his head that to that day continued to accuse his enemy it says something about those who did that to him and the wounds of christ do the same The wounds of Christ continue to accuse those who placed him on that cross. And if you are at an impasse as to who that may be, look to your left and then to your right and then down at yourself. It was our sins that put him there. So the wounds of Christ accuse us. Peter uses this same idea in Acts 2, verse 36, as he's preaching at Pentecost to get this across to the Jews. He says, "Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him Jesus, both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified." Now thankfully, for us, for our condemnation, if we are in Christ, Jesus is covered. We stand righteous before the Lord this morning. So these wounds do not speak the same thing about us if we know the Lord. However, the wounds of Christ continue to condemn those who do not place their trust in Jesus. I don't want to be light on sin this morning. Peter truly wasn't when he's speaking at Pentecost. Each of us has crucified our Christ, and for some some of you, That's where your story still stands this morning. The wounds of Christ continue to accuse. And if this is you today, turn from those sins, seek Jesus, trust in him, and listen very closely to our next point. Because thankfully, Jesus' wounds do not end there in their communicative powers. Although they continue to accuse his enemies, they also, fifthly, remind the Father of Jesus' sacrifice and our righteousness. It's helpful to be reminded of things from time to time, right? I regularly need to be reminded of lots of things, particularly where I am in the middle of a conversation. If you know me very well, you know that's deeply true. If something catches my attention for more than about two seconds... I'm done, and I don't remember where we've been for the last 30 minutes. I'm just out. I got nothing. So we need to be reminded of things from time to time, right? Now, I am not saying that the Father has forgotten Jesus' acts on the cross and thus needs to be reminded of it. That is not what I'm saying by any means. However, many of us have one of these. Mine is flimsy and made of rubber, but it's my wedding ring, right? I've lost the first one, so don't give me a nod story. That's why I've got this cheap one. I've got this wedding ring, and it, it reminds me of that day, the 29th of June. It reminds me of that day when I got married. Do I need a reminder? I still remember that I married, right? I'm not saying that I've forgotten that day. Right, Caleb, who was just up here leading, and Kylie over here playing the trumpet. If you guys didn't know, they're getting married next Sunday. That's going to be super fun. They're not going to need to be reminded of that day. They're going to remember that. But every time when I look at this ring, every time when I think about it, it reminds me not in a sense that I've forgotten about the day, but in a sense that my commitment toward it is renewed. Because I took vows on that day. And when I look at that ring, I remember and am reminded of and I resolve in a new way to hold to those vows. When Christ raises his hands before the Father, the Father is reminded and renewed to the vows and the commitment that he made. How beautiful is that? So Jesus' wounds stand as a constant reminder to the Father of his sacrifice on our behalf And then subsequently, our imputed righteousness. The Father looks at those wounds and sees us as righteous somehow. To quote Spurgeon again, he's just too good not to quote multiple times. When he, that is Jesus, when he rises up to pray for his people... He needs not speak a word. He lifts his hands before this father's face, he makes bare his side and points to his feet. These are the orders with which he pleads with God. These wounds, oh, they must prevail. What great news is that, right? First Peter, I'm sorry, First John chapter two tells us the same thing. It says that if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteous. He is the propitiation for our sins. What good news is this? His wounds advocate on our behalf. His wounds remind the Father of Jesus' sacrifice and our righteousness. Sixthly and lastly, his wounds are a trophy of our redemption. His wounds are a trophy of our redemption. His body that was marked with Christ's passion now stands as a trophy of victory for us. Theologians talk about Christ's life in the Gospels in two phases. One, the humiliation of Christ, that he took on flesh and was placed on the cross. And then the second phase is the exaltation of Christ, that he is resurrected and enthroned in Christ's resurrection body with wounds, we get a beautiful and perfect combination of the humiliation and the exaltation of Christ. This is the God-man resurrected with the wounds still displayed. He is both human and God beautifully in this picture. There's a poetic beauty in the midst of that. Now, we're not sadistic in the fact that we really get excited about the wounds and the blood of Christ. That's not what we are. But they do stand for us in a unique way. You may have heard this story. I like to tell it. When we were living in Denver, I had some Mormons come to our house and attempt to proselytize. Little did they know that I was in seminary. She's not really a great person to try to proselytize. Um, But amongst many things we talked about, one of them was about the cross and showing the cross. If you don't know that, Mormons don't generally display the cross. They, When they're looking at the exaltation and the humiliation of Christ, they place the cross in the humiliation side and they leave it there. They think it's an embarrassment to our God. Whereas we as Christians, we know the resurrection happened. We know that it's really on the exaltation side. So we've co-opted that to now be a sign of victory for us. And so to try to make their point, they said, if you had a friend who was shot, would you hang that gun on your wall? I kind of thought they got me there for a second. And I said, "Ha! I'm going to get you. I said, yeah, man. If my friend came back to life three days later, you better believe I'm putting that gun on my wall. That's the best story ever. That's what we get to do with the cross. That's what we get to do with the wounds of Christ. We look to those and we see our redemption in the midst of that. The wounds of Christ are now a trophy of victory for us. We look to what they mean. We look to what they mean for the future. We look to what they mean for the now and the here, right? Isaiah 53, the the suffering servant passage. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace. And with his wounds, we are healed. Chastisement brings peace and wounds that bring healing. What is this? Revelation 5, 12, looking forward and there's this host in the heavens singing worthy and the Lamb is the Lamb who was slain to receive power and wealth and wisdom and might and honor and glory and blessing. See, these wounds bring victory. These wounds help bring us to a saving knowledge of Jesus. And so this morning, to you who doubt, hear the word that our Lord brings to those doubters. Peace to you. And he then turns to you and makes the same offering that he made to his followers. Place your hand in my wounds. Let these wounds reveal Jesus to you. Let these wounds remind you of his sacrifice And his love. Let these wounds bring about your healing. Let these wounds provide a hope for what's to come. Let these wounds provide you with confidence to overcome doubt. And let these wounds provide you with ultimate victory in Christ. Let me pray for us this morning. Father, I come to you knowing. That these wounds bring about ultimate healing. Knowing that these wounds have prepared a way for us, Father, let us trust in this. Let us have a firm faith. Let these Wounds speak to our doubts. Let these wounds speak to our fears. Let these wounds speak to our troubles and our worries. Father, we know that Christ will bring about a hope and a confidence in us if we trust him. So, my, Father, is my prayer this morning that for those in this room who do not trust him, you that they would find this peace and this hope in the resurrected Jesus with wounds. In the resurrected Jesus who has conquered sin and death but knows our condition. Father let us Sing to you more boldly because of that truth. Let us hear your word more openly because of that truth. Let us trust in you more deeply because of that truth. It's in your name we pray. Amen.